0: In honor of God's word, if you would please rise and join me for reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thanks be to God. Or this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you.
1: Good morning. I am realizing. There, now. Oh, I turned myself off. See what I did right there? There. How are we now? Are we good? Yes? Yeah. Hey, there. He is risen. He is risen I just wanted to make sure you guys didn't forget that after just like two weeks. So you know that that's true all the time, right? He is risen. He is risen Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for another opportunity to come and bring the word of the Lord to our sister congregation here in Hinsdale. Father, I am so thankful to have been given this passage to preach on this morning. Father, I do pray that your word would be held forth this morning, that your word would be taken in this morning and that your word would be that word which sets people free this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning what I want to talk about is humility. And if we're honest, maybe I'm the only person here, but for some of us, humility is a difficult mindset to grasp, to enjoy. Because there are other mindsets that are kind of the opposite of humility that we enjoy much more. Like, shall we say, pride, arrogance, maybe self-exaltation, maybe kind of rumming it in everybody else's face a little bit. Which is why when I went down to the bleachers, uh, uh, Murphy's bleachers, to watch the flag raising for the world champion Chicago Cubs a couple weeks ago, it was awesome. It was amazing. It was a long-awaited opportunity to share in a victory that, believe it or not, I had absolutely no contribution to. But, I, but I, felt, I felt the same kind of like, yeah. The best part of this, though, was if you watched it, you know that the players went into the, went into the bleachers, and they went up the scoreboard, and they raised the flag up all together, and it was great. But the best part, the best part was when they came back down the stairs, and they came out from underneath the bleachers, and music started, and they've got the trophy up above their, up above their heads, and they're playing that hard-driving, fist-pumping, chest-thumping, walk-strutting song. It's a long, long way to the top if you want to rock and roll by ACDC. <laughs> and even better, they're doing it in front of the Dodgers, who have to watch this, right? So all of this triumphalism, all of this kind of in-your-face, boom, 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 is happening in front of the Dodgers, and it was kind of enjoyable, right? It's and it's, it's a joy to be able to kind of go, yeah, we're so much better than you. And that's great if you're a Cub fan. It's, it's wonderful, it's enjoyable, but it's not what we're called to do if we're living as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that's what Paul writes. Paul writes to the Philippians, these new Christians, right? So they're, it's a relatively new church plant, and they're new to Christianity, and Paul's writing them. Here's the posture. Here's the mindset that you're supposed to have. Not of arrogance, not of self-exaltation, but of humility. And that levels us, because so much of what we're about is the opposite of that. And that's what Paul invites them to, is to embrace a mindset of gospel-humbled living. And he starts right off with it. Here's what he says. If If you've got your Bibles, you've got your bulletin, you read along. He writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... That's so what he's asking them for. What is he saying here? That the way that we embrace gospel humbled living starts, the foundation of it starts with having experienced the gospel. That's what he means. When he says if there is any encouragement in Christ, what, he's, what it might sound like he's saying is if, if Christ has been encouraging to you, And while that's true, Christ does at times encourage us. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if there is any encouragement that comes from being in Christ, from being united to Christ by the gospel, having been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, if there is any encouragement that comes to you from that, if there is any comfort from love, And so here's one of the things that you need to know. A lot of commentators look at this passage and say, this is a very Trinitarian passage. And so you look at it and you say, okay, so he talks about Christ, and then you notice in the next phrase he's going to talk about the Spirit, but he doesn't talk about the Father here, so how how could we even make that assumption or that assertion? And it's because so often when Paul talks about having comfort from love, and having experienced love, the love always comes from the Father. And so many commentators see that what Paul's doing is weaving together this kind of Trinitarian formula, that if there's any comfort that you have received from the fact that you are in Christ, that you have been comforted now from having received the love of God, the love that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If you've been comforted by that love because you've experienced the gospel, if you've participated in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, which comes to us when we are united to God through Christ, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, if you have experienced the life-changing love of Jesus Christ, if you have any affection and sympathy, or, or mercy maybe is how we might translate this, if this reality of experiencing the gospel has produced in you affection and sympathy, which it surely has, if you have the foundation of the gospel in your life, then what Paul says is, complete my joy. That seems like an odd expression, doesn't it, right there? Where Paul says, if you've experienced the gospel, now what I want to appeal to you is I want to appeal to the motivation for why you should embrace gospel humbled living. Because I, Paul, am in pursuit of joy. And I honestly believe that if you are reconciled to God through the gospel, and if you have received any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, then I know that you also are seeking joy just like I am. And so I can appeal to you and I can say, complete my joy. That your desire is to bring me joy. That's what Paul's saying, complete my joy. And even here he hints at this gospel humbled living that what he wants the Philippians to do is to serve him. Think about that for a second. That's what he says. Complete my joy. Think about me. What I want from you is to seek joy. That This is the foundation of gospel humbled living. And then he talks about the motivation for gospel humbled living. And now we get to the root of the matter. What does this look like in practicality? If we have experienced the life-changing love of Jesus Christ, if we have been encouraged in Christ, if we have experienced the comfort of love, if we have participated in the Spirit, if we have any affection and and mercy, what would it look like for us to complete this joy that Paul is seeking, that Paul wants them to seek? What does it look like for us in community? And to say that a tiny bit has been written about this passage would be a gigantic understatement I have two good commentaries that I like to use on Philippians. In one of them, there is a hundred pages devoted just to this passage. Do you know how long it will take for me today to go through all of those hundred pages? And that's why I won't do it. But there's there's a lot to be said about this. Because it's important, because Paul is so taken up as he writes this passage that he moves into what we refer to as this Christ hymn. That he moves into a place of worshiping Christ as he talks about what does it look like for this congregation, this church in Philippi, to embrace gospel-humbled living. And what he says is, be of one mind. He actually says it three times. So if you look at the passage, here's what he says. Complete my joy. Being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord, which is the same as having one mind, and then he says, and of one mind. So what is on his mind? What's on his mind is that he wants the Philippians to be of one mind. It's exactly the same thing that he's just said in Philippians 1.27. Striving together for the faith of the gospel with one mind. So what Paul is saying is, For them to have gospel-humbled lives, to be able to serve each other in community, they have to have one goal. You can't serve each other. You can't work together. You can't strive side-by-side for the gospel if everybody has a different goal. So what Paul's saying is there has to be one goal. You have to have one mind, the faith of the gospel, that that's what you're striving for. And when everybody has one goal, everybody understands that they're working together for one purpose— then serving each other as you're working towards that one goal becomes the natural thing that you would, of course, do. And that's why Paul says, striving together for one goal. Having the same love, that part of gospel humbled living is having the same love, the same love that the Father has for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life, that we should have that same love for one another. Now, here we're going to do a tiny bit of math. Not a lot of math because I'm not good at it. But we're going to do a little bit of math. So what we know is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, and we're supposed to have that same love for one another, and we know that Paul is talking to a church, and so we know that what Paul's goal here is to tell the members of this church that they should have the same love for one another, for each other in the church. Are we all agreed that that's what this is saying? And here's what else he's saying because Christ also said, you should love your neighbors as yourself, then we can also say that what Paul is saying here is not just that we should have this same love for one another in the church, but whatever love we have for one another in the church, we have to have for those who are outside of the church. That gospel humbled living is not just loving the people inside this room, but loving people outside of this room with the same love that the Father loved us. I read this week somewhere where it said that you can't love God more than you love the least person that you love. Think about that. We say, oh, I I love God so much. I really do love him. I really hate my coworker, though. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because we know where that parable ends. Well, who is my neighbor? Your neighbor is the person that you don't want your neighbor to be. I want you to love them that way, to have one love. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I will tell you that I spent no small amount of time repenting when I got to this part because I spend no small amount of time doing things out of selfish ambition and conceit believe it or not it is why when church planters get together one of the first questions that we're supposed to ask each other is yeah how are you doing how is how is the gospel moving forward in your community How are you encouraging one another to live as citizens of the kingdom of God in a manner worthy of the gospel? How is the gospel impacting your life? That's what we're supposed to ask one another, but it's not the first question we ask. The first question that we ask one another is, does anybody know it? How many people did you have on Sunday morning? That's the first question that we ask because we want to be able to feel better about ourselves. Because we want to measure ourselves against one another. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So, kids, if you're in school, you know that this is your reality. That you likely go to a school, you maybe attend a school where you are aware that there are particular people in your school who are doing things out of selfish ambition and conceit. Maybe you look and you say, oh, it's it's the jock of the football team or the the jock of the women's uh, swimming team. Maybe it's that person who's just the smartest person in the school and, and they want everybody to know it and they walk around all conceited with the purpose of making you feel bad. And we know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that. To be on the receiving end of somebody who has so much selfish ambition and conceit that it makes everybody around them feel diminished, feel like they don't matter, feel like they don't measure up. And so, of course, Paul is saying, if you're in a community, if you've experienced Christ, then that's not the posture that you should have. But here's the thing. So I was, in my school, shall we say, Uh, Here was like the pecking order of my school, like all the cool people, the people who were about to be cool people, the people who were friends with the cool people, the people who, you know, were kind of in that middle rung. And then somewhere like down here is like where I was. You know, I was the guy who didn't get the memo that green, green pants weren't what you were supposed to wear to school every day. And, you know, I just, I was that kind of nerdy, geeky guy. And so you might say, oh, well, you didn't have that problem. I wasn't the person walking around with selfish ambition and conceit. But that was only because I wasn't able to. It's not because I didn't want to. It's not because I didn't want to be that person. It's not because I didn't want to be able to walk around and have the whole school worship me. And to be able to posture myself around. I wanted it even though I couldn't do it. So this is what Paul is getting at. Is whether or not you're in the position to actually do it. Or even if your heart is saying, this is what I want. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Counting others as more significant than yourselves. Again, man, this, this passage is hard for me to work through myself. Counting others as more significant than yourselves. This entire sermon series, if you open your bulletins and you look at the front page, the sermon series is called The Significant Life. And so here's what Paul says. If you want a significant life, the key to a significant life is counting others as more significant than you. Think about that for a moment. The way that we have a significant life is experiencing the gospel in such a way is that we look at other people and say, those people, that person is more significant than me because I have been humbled by the gospel. And the place where this really bites is we're supposed to have this mindset. This is the mindset that Paul's talking about. That we have the mindset that that person is more significant than me. Here's the real hard part even if they think they're more significant than you think about how hard that is because we know that person who walks around thinking they're more i'm more significant than you are we're like i don't like those people what paul says is count other people as more significant than yourself does that include people who think they're more significant than me yes it does oh man that's going to be really hard (laughs) I don't want to do that. I I don't want to do that. And we've all been there. And yet the gospel humbled life, a life that's been humbled by the fact that the reason that we've experienced the life-changing love of Jesus Christ, the reason that we have been united to God through Christ, the reason that we have experienced the comfort of love, the reason that we participate in the Spirit is not because... We worked hard for it. It's not because we were somehow counted worthy of it. It's because God decided to love us because he decided to love us out of his own mercy. And so we can look at the person who thinks that they're more significant than us and we can say, my life has been humbled by the gospel in such a way is that I can count that person as more significant than me because I realize that my significance was given to me by the gospel. Think about what it would be like to go to work tomorrow morning and look around your office or go to school and look around your school and think to yourself, today every action I take, every interaction I have with my coworker, with my fellow student, is going to be based on this principle. What can I do? To express to them that they are more significant than I am in this company or in this school. What would that be like if that's what you were to do tomorrow? If we all did that? To count others as more significant than ourselves. That's what Paul says. Do this among yourselves as a church. And because we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to do this to everyone. The way that we treat one another is the exact way that we should treat everyone. Looking not only to your own interests, And notice here that Paul does not say, don't consider your own interests. He doesn't say that. What he says is, don't only consider your own interests, but consider the interests of others. Don't only consider your interests, but consider the interests of others. So last night, my wife and I were watching on one of the many, many PBS channels that are available on Antenna TV. We were watching this show about Chicago. It was a documentary about race in Chicago. And we're talking about how, you know, during the 1950s, a lot of black people from the South moved into areas of Chicago, they moved there, they bought houses. It's called the Great Migration. And they talked about these various neighborhoods where they moved into. And they talked about how one of the things that the banks would do is they had this, this phrase called redlining. And what redlining was is banks would actually, they had maps in their lending rooms with a red line around them. And that meant we don't loan money to people who live in this area. Because, well, they're black. So we don't lend money to them. So they'll have to buy these homes from these people on contract. And they'll have to pay three to four times what it's actually worth in interest. Think about what happened there. And then they went on to say that what would happen is a, a black family would move in to a neighborhood. And so this black family has somehow worked their way into the middle class or they're trying to work their way into the middle class. And they buy a home. And so all of, may, many of us in this room, not all of us, many in this room know what it's like to buy a home. We know that kind of feeling of accomplishment that comes with like, this is my first home. This is a place where I, I have worked and I have labored and I bought this home and now I live here and I'm so happy. And then imagine 100 people show up in your front yard giving you death threats, throwing things at you and saying, get out, what would it have been like if instead of that the neighbors had said, oh, I'm thinking not only of my own interests, but of the interests of this family that has just moved in next to me. They are more significant than I am. How can I help them? How can I bless them? What if that was the posture that the neighbors took? And what if it was the posture the neighbors took because it was the posture that the church had taken and that the church had so understood what it meant to live gospel-humbled lives that when a situation like this happened, people came around them and said, we are so glad you're here. We consider you as more significant than ourselves. We're looking not just to our own interests, but to your interest as well. This is what Paul is talking about in this gospel-humbled life. And then Paul says, I should give them an example. I should give them an example of what a gospel-humbled life might look like. And he goes, of course, to Christ. He writes, have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have this mindset. Here Paul goes again. Have this mindset, which is yours in Christ. Paul says, if you have experienced the gospel, this mindset, this way of thinking is yours in Christ. It's yours. It is available to you. To embrace this sacrifice of humility. The example of gospel humbled living is to embrace the sacrifice of humility. It says, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, he emptied himself. So here's your one minute disclaimer on biblical heresies. What's going on here? Here's what's not going on. At no point During the incarnation, did Christ cease being completely God? In every way, he was God. And in every way, he was man. He didn't just appear as a man, but was like really some kind of apparition. He really was physically a man that you could touch and that ate and that could walk and that could be injured and hurt and killed. He was fully God and fully man in every way. End of How to Avoid Biblical Heresy. So what does it mean that he emptied himself? Here's the way I would like to maybe express this. So imagine, if it, how many here have ever seen a good war movie? Okay. So one of my favorite movies uh, is this movie, uh, Officer and a Gentleman. It's not really a war movie, but it, it's a pretty good film. And in this movie, Richard Gere plays this kind of pretentious, obnoxious, young recruit. And Lou Gossett Jr. plays this army officer who for whatever reason doesn't like Richard Gere and Richard Gere doesn't like him. But one thing that Richard Gere knows, that any enlisted man in the military knows, no matter how much you hate your commanding officer, you cannot touch them. If you touch them or take a swing at them, you are going to jail and probably worse. And so in a lot of these war movies, when there's this conflict between an officer and an enlisted guy, the officer sometimes will say, oh, okay, you want to go? You want to go at it? And he takes off his officer's uniform, and he lays it aside. He lays it somewhere, and he's like, okay, five minutes. Take your best shot. So we think about it that way. Think that at no point did Christ stop being fully God. What he did is he said, Even though I'm entitled to all the rights and privileges of the Godhead, of my Godhood, I'm going to lay some of these aside and allow myself to be subjected to humiliation and torture and death that human beings feel. But see, unlike this scene that we see in movies, Christ doesn't lay this aside to put us in our place. He lays that aside to rescue us from our place. Because our place is a place of judgment and wrath and God lays that aside to rescue us from this place. And in a lot of ways you think about it, he does the exact opposite of what Adam did. So this grasping, this thinking that equality with God is a thing to be grasped is something that's at the core of our sin. Because it's, it's the first sin. It's what Satan appeals to in Adam. Don't you want to be like God You could be like God if you just do the thing that he told you not to do. You could be like God, and that appeals to him. It appeals to Eve, it appeals to Adam, and so they sin. And as Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry, it appeals to his apostles too, which is why as they're walking on the road to Jericho, they say, hey, it appears to us that we have left everything for you. Give to us whatever we want. As I said before, I, I got to imagine that after three years of training these disciples, Jesus is like, oh man, this has not gone well. This is the question you have a week before my death. What do you want? Well, we would like power. We would like to sit at your right and left hand. It's the sin of Adam, it's the sin of the apostles, and it's our sin. We're constantly grasping at trying to be like God. We want to be like him because we, being humbled by the gospel is so difficult for us. We would rather be like God. But it's not just a sacrifice of humility. It's not just embracing what Christ did, which is giving up that thing that he had, those rights and privileges that he had, but it was doing that in service of humility, taking the form of a servant, or maybe even better, a slave who has no rights and intentionally seeking to serve others. That's what Christ did. And it's not just a sacrifice of humility, it's not just a service of humility, but it is the obedience of humility. It says that he was obedient to God, even death on a cross. So as I scoured the commentaries trying to figure out how to relay this, I finally, finally landed on probably one of the best ways of articulating this. And maybe you've heard of this particular commentator. His name is Meatloaf. And he wrote this, not really about this passage, but I think it applies. What does it mean to be obedient to the gospel? It means what Meatloaf wrote when he wrote, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. All of us place some kind of limits on what our obedience, what our obedience of humility and service would look like. Whether it's time, whether it's effort, whether it's people, or more likely, it's the outcome. What what will happen to me if I embrace this gospel-humbled life, if I embrace this sacrifice and service? What will this obedience cost me? And we figure out, and we're like, okay, I'm not willing to do that. And so the reason that Paul gives this example is, Paul says, is your example of how to live gospel-humbled lives in community. I give you Christ, who gave up everything in order to serve, even to the point of death on a cross. That should be your example of what gospel-humbled living looks like. Now, here's the weird kind of counterintuitive thing. Some of us are struggling with this idea of embracing humility in in the way that it relates to us serving others. But I want to flip it around. If we embrace gospel-humbled living as a community, do you know what else that means? That means that other people will be looking out for your interests. That's what it says. Look out for one another's interests. That means that if we embrace gospel humbled living, somebody else is going to be looking out for your interests, and you have to be willing to let them. And for some of us, that's the hard part. For some of us the hard part is that if we embrace gospel humble living what this says is that somebody is going to serve you. And in fact somebody is supposed to serve you. And for some of us the hard part is letting them. That our struggle with humility comes when we're faced with receiving humble service from another person we say no I don't want that. No 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 I don't I don't I don't want help. That's where our pride shows. And it's what gospel-humbled living undoes for us. So what is the goal? What is the goal of gospel-humbled living? And this is the greatest part of all. You know what the goal of gospel-humbled living is? Exaltation. That's where it ends. It's what it says. Therefore, because he did these things, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. That when Christ embraced this gospel-humbled pattern of living, That Paul holds out. He was exalted because of it by God. Not only was he exalted, he was worshiped. It says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That this gospel humble living, this pattern of living that Christ embraced resulted not just in his exaltation, but in his worship. And as we embrace this, our goal is that everyone... So what this passage says is that everyone, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But our goal is embracing gospel humble living is that they would do it now rather than doing it on the day of judgment. That that's why we embrace this pattern of living so that other people will say, I have experienced the life-changing love of Jesus Christ and I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord now. Maybe you're in that place today. I want to tell you that this life is available to you, that God begs you, implores you to experience this life-changing love in a way that changes your life. And here's the great thing, this idea of getting this new name, it doesn't just go to Jesus, it goes to us If you were to go to Revelation, there's these two passages where John writes, To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. Those are other sermons for another time. With a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In Revelation 3.12, he writes, To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the new name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. Experiencing the life-changing love of Jesus calls us to embrace gospel-humbled living that ends not only with the exaltation and worship of Christ, but of God exalting you. What the gospel allows us to do is to stop trying to exalt ourselves, stop working to exalt ourselves, stop working to get others to exalt us, and says, I am completely confident in the fact that God says, for no other reason than he chose to love me, is that he is going to exalt me. He is going to give me the name that he has given his son, and he is going to call me his own, and I'm going to live with him forever with my sins forgiven because the gospel is true. And because the gospel is true, I can serve other people. I can do it humbly because I know God is going to exalt me, and that is all I need. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the gospel, that it is real and true every single day that you send your only Son, our Lord, as a pattern for gospel-humbled living. In Christ's name, amen. Hear this confession of sin, which we can confess as Luther encourages us to do boldly. I love that phrase, confess your sins boldly follow along in the bold. Our Father in heaven, we have often pursued paths of self-exaltation instead of humility. We have often sought dominance rather than service. We have often torn down others in order to build ourselves up. We have often promoted ourselves instead of those made in your image." We have often measured ourselves against others rather than the gospel. We have judged others, forgetful that you alone are the judge. Within your church, we have been slow to practice loving of our neighbors. And in the world, we have not been your faithful servants. Forgive us and help us to embrace the reality that humility is the key to experiencing and extending the life-changing love of your Son, Jesus Christ, in our homes, our workplaces, and our communities. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel and being found in human form. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven.